Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 82, Resident Extreme. I'm Dan Hewitt, and I'll be your host today. If you're new to the show, we bring in NASA experts to talk about all different parts of our space agency. And sometimes we get lucky enough to bring in astronauts to talk about their story. So today we're talking with Christina Hammock-Cook. She's a U.S. astronaut who's about to launch to the International Space Station in March 2019 for her very first space flight. We talked about her education studying electrical engineering and physics, her time at NASA Goddard in Maryland studying astrophysics, and her experience living in some of the most remote places in the world, including Alaska, Greenland, American Samoa, and Antarctica. She's no joke. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Christina Cook. Enjoy. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch the midline circle. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. I'm glad we could pull you out of the final months of training for a couple of minutes. I know life's got to be hectic. What have you been up to lately? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, my honor to be here. I have been back in Houston training for about three weeks now. And when I'm back here, I'm mainly working on space station systems training, uh, space station emergency training, uh, tracking capture training for grabbing the uh, visiting cargo vehicles when they come using the robotic arm, and uh, training on medical stuff. So making sure I can help out my crewmates when the time comes. So at this point, you're you're so close to launch. Do you just have like a calendar on the wall where you're Xing <laughs> off the days and then there's one written like launch circled real big? Mentally, I do have a little bit of a, a list in my head. Yesterday, I did happen to notice that it was exactly one month until I leave for Russia for the last time for the launch. So it's an exciting time. And yes, we have a Google calendar actually with uh, the date marked. Yeah, and I should mention we have Bob Cook with us today. He's going to be hanging out. How are you doing? We'll, we'll we'll get with you, Bob, in a little bit. I want to I want to kind of go through Christina's early life a little bit. We want to we want to see kind of the behind the music, how behind the astronaut, how you got to where you are today. So, where were you born? I was actually born in Western Michigan in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I grew up in Eastern North Carolina. Okay. And so you've kind of moved around all over the place. Did you live anywhere else? Actually, growing up, I was pretty stable. We lived in the same town um, in in North Carolina for many years. And it wasn't until I graduated from college that I started um, kind of exploring the world a little bit more. And I was just looking through just some of the places you've been. You have been everywhere. You've been you've been kind of all over the place. So where where'd you go to college? I went to college in North Carolina, North Carolina State University, and that's in Raleigh. Okay, so you kind of stuck close to home, and then yep. after that, it was just like, you know, completely out the window. You're going everywhere. What was, do you remember like the first time you left the country? I do. Actually, the first time I ever left the country was I went to Australia to visit an aunt that lived there. So that was definitely eye opening. And then um, I saved up my money in college and I took a vacation to Scotland during one of my summers. And then after that, my next trip, I think, was my study abroad in Ghana in West Africa. 
what were you studying in college? Everybody, we, we always hear the same questions. You know, what, what did you do to become the astronaut? What should I go study to kind of be in your shoes? What did Christina do? Well, I was really passionate about um, physics and electrical engineering. So that's what I studied. I think uh, everyone should follow sort of what they love, not necessarily what they think. Uh, you know, if you want to be an astronaut, not necessarily what you think NASA wants you to study, but definitely what you love. And that's what drew me in. I chose physics because I love the theoretical aspects of kind of how the world works and all the cool sounding things like quantum mechanics. And then engineering was just a way to kind of bring it bring it down to earth and get a chance to design things, uh, be in a lab bench, uh, make things with my hands. You know, I had grown up working with my dad in his shed and I just loved tools and uh, creating things. Was there any kind of moment you think in your life, uh, you know, the, the young kid sees the guitar in the window and grows <laughs> up to be the rock star? Anything that you did that kind of laid the path to be an astronaut? You know, I was fascinated with space from the time I was really young. I was I always used to say I liked things that made me feel small. I liked the ocean, I liked the the night sky. And so that uh sort of uh, adventurous exploration kind of interest led me to want to sort of explore the world. Uh, I did a lot of reading travel magazines as a kid, but I don't know exactly when the moment happened because even in my small town, there weren't even necessarily engineers that I ever saw. So I, I'm not really sure how I got it into my head. Uh, might have been a trip down to Kennedy Space Center with the family, um, but I just know it's always been there. And, you know, the choice to be an engineer, like I said, was just, it sounded really awesome to me, not necessarily because I even knew what that meant when I was, you know, 16 years old and making those decisions. But based on what I was good at and what I like to do, it, it definitely was the right path for me. So you got the engineering bug early on and you did that throughout college. And you, so you said you did a study abroad what, and you were in Ghana. What was that like? Ghana was an incredible experience. Um, it gave me a lot of perspective. It taught me that what I had come to know as normal wasn't necessarily normal uh, everywhere. Very different than North Carolina, I imagine. Very, yes. Um, I did a lot of African studies. I got to have a drumming class um, underneath a tree behind a, a certain building. So those were my classrooms when I was there. And it was an amazing experience. I traveled a lot there. I learned about a lot about myself. And I learned to be comfortable in situations that weren't, you know, what I was used to. There was no Walmart to go to there when you needed something. You, you had to kind of make Make it happen uh, transportation getting around everything was different and learning to adapt and learning that I could adapt was uh, a real confidence builder as well as a perspective builder and then so you you go through that and then you're done with college what was kind of the first step out of college so when you were in college did you know what you were going to do when you graduated college because I know so many people are just like I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up I was lucky. I knew I wanted to work at NASA, and I had yeah. had a summer internship in a group at Goddard Space Flight Center doing high-energy astrophysics instrument design, and I was fortunate enough that when I graduated, they wanted to hire me full-time, so I went to work there, and from that point on, um, my career just, that was sort of the launching point. I also had had an interest all along in Antarctica. Um, I had posters of Antarctica up on my walls when I was a kid and it was again just in this vein of exploration and science on the frontiers and so after two years of my job as an engineer with NASA I ended up uh, searching out and getting lucky enough to land a job working at the South Pole for a year so that was kind of the first two years post-college for me. So this is something that kind of always blows me away at NASA. I, I have a very vivid memory of being over in Kazakhstan one time for a Soyuz mission, and we're just sitting there eating breakfast, and four of the six people at the table had been to Antarctica. And I don't, I don't know about a lot of you, but 
it's very rare to meet even one person in your lifetime that's been to Antarctica, and we seem to have a whole bunch of them yep. here at NASA. What is it about Antarctica that kind of draws people to it, and what is the parallel that we keep seeing with yeah. what we do with spaceflight? There are many parallels, and um, I agree. There's a lot of Antarctic um, folks here. I would say kind of the just the harshness of the environment and the mental and physical kind of fortitude that it takes to be successful somewhere like that, coupled with the science that you can do in that unique environment. So it's really a great analog. Um, there are there are scientific reasons why it's an analog. For example, people looking at how to build a lander for Europa go and test it in certain parts of Antarctica and the frozen, you know, under, under frozen ice lakes there. So there's physical analogs and then there's just, you know, the mental um, analogs as well. Do you guys have like an Antarctic book club here at NASA? I mean, there's enough of you. There is enough of us. No, we chat about it a lot. No book club yet. Good idea. So you were doing some engineering stuff and some Were you doing any of the, because you're also a physicist, were you doing any of the, the, the more high-minded astrophysics work at NASA? You know, the jobs I had down there were a lot similar to kind of the astronaut job, where you're not the researcher running running the uh, research program or you're not the principal investigator, but you're the person on the ground, the eyes and ears, running the experiment and kind of having to know enough about it to be useful in that role and also to just enjoy tinkering and making things work in a harsh environment when they don't don't always want to work um, initially. So I was what's called a research associate. I also dealt with a lot of cryogenics. Um, the telescopes at the South Pole were cryogenics, actually, to have their detectors cold enough to detect the really faint signals that they're looking for. So um, even in a place as cold as the South Pole, we, we still used cryogenics, and that was a program I was in charge of. So I ran um, geophysical labs for researchers that weren't there, and um, just a really wide variety of different types of experiments. You couldn't just open in the window cool off the telescope <laughs> no our our um our motto was south pole cryo when when the south pole just isn't cold enough <laughs> how cold did it need to be um those experiments got down to like the temperatures of uh, liquid helium which would be like four degrees above um absolute zero so yeah four kelvin um right, so a little bit colder yeah a little bit colder than the outside. minus 100 uh fahrenheit on station <laughs> all right so after after Antarctica, where where did the path take you? Where where were you off to after that? Hopefully somewhere warmer. Yeah, I, I didn't quite make it to somewhere warmer right away, but I did return to space science instrumentation. I worked um, as a space science um, instrument designer at the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University, working on NASA missions. So I had the opportunity to kind of do more uh, team design of, of space science instruments, which was really exciting. I had a couple launches. I have an instrument that I um, was a part of a team for at Jupiter right now. Now, um, one orbiting the Earth, studying radiation. Um, and then after that, um, the bug called again, and I returned to remote science work, and this time was able to kind of expand and incorporate work up in the Arctic. So I got some seasons wintering in Greenland, as well as the northern coast of Alaska. And then finally, uh, to another remote station that's in that same network of science bases that was in American Samoa. Finally got somewhere warm. I was going to say, so then you went you went to Greenland, so you just kind of have a thing for being in the middle of nowhere, it seems. <laughs> I do enjoy the challenges, like I talked yeah. about. Um, small crews is always a really interesting environment, just learning how to how to thrive with a small group of people, getting to know people really well, having them feel like your family, and then getting to do really neat science all along. Um, those challenges, you know, in the seasonal, working seasonally, so having time off to do some of my outdoor hobbies um, between seasons working in those places. The overall lifestyle, um, incorporating science, and those 
those um, opportunities was was really great. Are there many outdoor hobbies you can do in Antarctica or Greenland? There are. Um, in, in many of the places there, obviously, cross-country skiing is yeah. one that comes to mind. But our jobs day-to-day are very, very demanding. So I talked about how I love rock climbing. Well, I used to get to climb towers to work on instruments at the top of these instrumentation towers. And I've lugged soldering irons up towers and soldered in minus 40-degree weather, um, fixing things hanging off the tower with you know carabiner gear and things like that so just the job itself kind of scratched the itch of outdoor adventure so this astronaut stuff's just going to be easy right i don't know about that no it's presented (laughs) plenty challenges plenty new challenges and opportunities all right well we finally got you somewhere warm you're in American Samoa. What were you doing there? I was working another, at another remote research base. Um, this this particular um, network of bases is a was a climate research station, famous for measuring what's called the Keeling curve, so the CO2 um, overall atmospheric rise of CO2. Um, these climate stations have to be in remote places because they're designed to measure the baseline of our atmosphere. So they can't be affected by, you know, human sources of any of these things that we're studying. So Cars driving down the street. Exactly. Stuff, yeah. So really remote places. So um, American Samoa is like maybe 500 miles or so south of Hawaii in the middle of the Pacific, and there's prevailing winds there. So we stuck, a, or NOAA stuck a station on, on the kind of upwind end of the island and has been studying the climate there. And that's where you met Bob. It is. I was very lucky. I met Bob. My, what were you doing down my husband there? there? I was uh, working as a contractor for the government, and uh, I was a head of the geospatial program for the the Samoan Department of Commerce. And so I was there on a, on a two-year contract. Um, you know, similar uh, similar type of uh, mission, trying to accomplish something somewhere unique and, and travel somewhere and, and do some interesting work. Do you remember how you guys met? I don't. I don't know how personal we want to get, but like, did you guys were were you climbing a carabiner and you <laughs> happened to be you know next in line to climb up with tools or something? Actually, no. But it's funny you mention that because there is a funny story um, that happened later where um, Bob's a football fan, and I'm not necessarily a football fan, but I am a rock climbing fan. And there was a big Super Bowl party one day that I skipped to go rock climbing <laughs> with the other rock climbing rebel of our friend group. So we didn't always necessarily uh, do everything together but we met at a Halloween party actually yeah we met at a Halloween party and uh, Christina worked on the most remote place of a remote island and on her commute to work which was about like 45 minutes to an hour yep across the whole entire island she passed one of the the best uh, surf breaks on the island so as soon as I learned that I started asking her to send me uh, videos or surf reports so I wouldn't have to drive uh, an hour across the island to find out Yep. And so we had to uh, teach Christina how to calibrate her wave forecasting and wave reporting. Yep, a new job duty of mine, not only monitoring the climate, but monitoring uh, the, the swell, the surf state. So yeah, I got lucky there. I happened to work next to uh, a surf break that Bob was interested in knowing more about. So he had to keep in touch with me. Yeah. Well, what, what else is there to do when you're kind of out in the, the remotest places on, on planet Earth? so much to do in american samoa lots of outdoor adventure i mean well you would call it peter pan island right yeah exactly it's, it was a beautiful place um where you can just imagine both mountains and the ocean available so a lot of paddling hiking uh, scuba diving surfing obviously i wasn't a surfer yet at that point but bob was really really big into the surfing so just just tons of adventure 
Well, then it became time for kind of the ultimate adventure, becoming an astronaut. When, when did you first decide, I mean, were you just kind of scrolling through the internet someday and say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll click on this, this job application, right. give that a shot. Right. I had heard about the call for astronauts in 2009, but at that point I um, was working at the job, still doing space science instrumentation at the Applied Physics Lab. I felt, sort of looked um, at my collective experience and didn't feel like I was quite ready to present myself to this program that, you know, I had loved for so long. I didn't feel like I had quite accumulated the amount of experience I wanted to. So I held off on applying that year, um, but then in 2011 there was another call, and um, again I looked at my cumulative experience and I thought I'm ready. I'm ready to sit across from people at a table and tell them that I can contribute to this program. So I was actually in Barrow, Alaska, by myself, and you know in the house in the house working outside uh, near the station I worked at there and got together my online application and hit submit. I was 500 miles north of the Arctic Circle at the time, and um, I thought I would never hear anything back from them. It was just, you know, I thought I thought that was it. And that was your, you only applied once. That's correct. So you were a first timer. Yes, A lot of our astronauts fortunate. have stories of perseverance of the NASA rejection letter. So <laughs> you, you, that extra experience obviously paid off. And so you were selected in 2013 and you've been here ever since. What's, I mean, what's the astronaut life like? Oh, no, no, before we get to that, I'm skipping ahead. There's the all-important call. Oh, so yes, what was the, the call. So what was the process like to go through to becoming an astronaut? It was a neat process. Um, I actually traveled to Houston for both of my multi-day on-site interviews at NASA from American Samoa, and like Bob knows, only two flights leave American Samoa per week. So it was no small feat just getting getting back here, back to the States. Um, Bob was really supportive. He got some friends together before my interviews, made me cards, uh, made sure that everybody was rooting for me back, back home in American Samoa. And then um, when the call came, a lot of people tell the story that as soon as they heard the person on the other end of the line, they knew whether it was the, the good call or the bad call because um, they were kind of in on, on knowing that. I actually hadn't, I wasn't kind of, didn't have that insider information, so I had no idea, and I just assumed it was going to be the rejection call. So um, as soon as the person started talking, I immediately launched into my speech of, thank you for the time, it's been a great honor. Uh-huh. And they actually had to stop me. Um, it was Janet Cavandi, and she said, wait, no, um, I'm calling to tell you I want you to join our team here in Houston and I was so baffled that I couldn't speak I I didn't answer I just stopped talking and she said hello (laughs) and um, eventually I regained my composure and and finished the conversation with her but as you know they ask you not to tell too many people Um, so uh, the other neat thing about the call is because the time difference it came in at six in the morning so it actually woke me up and so I was kind of out of it during the call and on top of that wasn't allowed to really talk to anyone about it I would have told Bob but actually that week he had a big talk coming up at work and so I thought well let me not you know enter too much of a distraction here so um, by the end of the day the end of the work day of the day I received the call in the morning I was almost wondering if it had really happened was that you know was that a dream so I remember getting back from work that day and checking the little post-it note next to my bed and I had scribbled some notes and so I thought okay that that really happened (laughs) I can't imagine keeping a secret like that from people yeah, it was a lot um, to take in all at once. Uh, it took me an hour before I started crying about it. Um, I was actually on my way to work when it kind of hit me. And then, you know, I, I, I just sort of processed it during the day and, 
and uh, it was in some ways kind of nice to have that news to yourself and just kind of think about what it's going to mean for you in your life before you start to share it. And so, Bob, how did you finally find out? Well, uh, yeah, I remember the night that uh, she finally told me, and uh, you know, a couple, a lot of emotions, you know, came over me. I was so proud, so excited. Um, I was also like, wow, this is a big secret. <laughs> that was a big one to keep. And uh, I was like, okay, it's, I uh, guess we're heading to Houston. Had either of you been to Houston before? No. Nope. Well, there's... Never, never saw ourselves here necessarily. Just, you know, had never had a chance to live in this part of the country. Probably way more people in the immediate area than it sounds like you're used to. So I hope you've adjusted. A little busier than American Samoa, yeah. It's definitely a contrast. It was getting off a plane in in the middle of the night from a remote island and then landing in the middle of Houston is uh, pretty interesting. The surfing at Galveston's not nearly as good either. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely explored the YouTube video uh, catalog while I was in American Samoa and had to. Came to, the realiza- yeah, <laughs> came to the realization that I was going to have to readjust my uh, expectations for surfing. Yep. And so what, what was it like kind of adjusting back? Because was this, was this kind of your first time back in, you know, real civilization for a while? And Bob, probably for you too, if you were out there for a couple of years, what was it life to like to kind of get back into the swing of things in a city life? Yeah, kind of big adjustment. I have been working um, in different places for about three years and Um, When I came back, Bob still had a year on his contract in American Samoa, so by the time he got back, he had been working abroad for two years. Um, When I picked him up from the airport, I made sure to wear cowboy boots and a big cowboy hat to welcome him back to his new life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, it was not only adjusting back to just a regular culture, you know, um, and the hustle and bustle of a big city, but interestingly, we both ended up making adjustment to a new workplace culture, because previously we had both been more in a research-oriented academia type of work and both of the jobs that we ended up finding back in the states had more of a military culture and a military aspect to them Um, Bob can tell you more but he works at the Army Corps of Engineers and me here at NASA with a big part of the cadre being former military so we we would exchange a lot of notes on you know different things we would we would find about the culture you know even just simple things like how you compose an email and your communication styles we would we would sort of compare notes on that and help each other out and I I have here you're the stewards of a 120-year-old home. That's Is true. Is it haunted? Well, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple names for it. the Little John residence. Yep. And uh, it does have a unique history. And, um, you know, it's a lot of work, but it's a labor of love. And it's been a really uh, ex- exciting thing to be a steward of such a yeah. unique property while, while living in the area. Yeah, something that really ties us to to Galveston and to the area, knowing that we're kind of caretakers of this home. It's a storm survivor home, so it survived the great storm of 1900, which is you wow. know, one of the biggest natural disasters in the history of this country. And so, you know, we 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 enjoy working on that kind of as a collective project. All right. Well, what's kind of been the ASCAN life for you now, transitioning into the the ready to fly astronaut? So it was. What was ASCAN training like for you? Well, um, I I kind of termed it, you know, like learn five careers in two years uh, training 
flow. Um, you know, learning how to fly and kind of the piloting aspect of it, learning uh, spacewalks, learning a new language, learning the systems of the International Space Station, and learning how to control the robotic arm. All of those things are almost could be a career in and of itself. So, um, jokingly, I used to say that my job was to learn something new and be bad at it for a while. Um, because the truth is, um, you know, we all came from the people, you know, in my class came from different backgrounds. We had different strengths uh, with different different areas that we weren't strong in um, because of the skill set we brought in. So, you really had to get comfortable with learning something completely new. And even if it wasn't something that your experience had um, brought to you from your past life, being comfortable with um, taking it on and really embracing it so you know just learning all of those new things I always I also say that I would have been really amazing to see like an MRI of my own brain as it expanded during this time because it was really a fortunate situation you know most people mid-career uh, mid-30s don't have the opportunity to suddenly take a, a u-turn and start to have to learn a completely new career field um, so to just one prove that that's still possible and that there's still all this room for growth even when you're mid-career where you know some people might be kind of like settling down into a career path we were actually asked to step it up so that was a really a really neat experience and then since ASCAN it's just been a series of interesting um, additional trainings work finally giving back giving having a ground job contributing to the program and then finally um, being really fortunate and getting a flight assignment was there anything you found kind of the most difficult? A lot of times I hear it's learning the new language, yep. especially if, you, you know, you'd only ever spoke one before. That was definitely a challenge for me. Um, you know, when people ask me what are some, what's something you can highlight as almost not a failure, but a real challenge that you could use an example to inspire people that might be, you know, uh, meeting difficulty in something they love doing. And I did not uh, take... Uh, my Russian training was very difficult for me. I actually ended up having a couple different Russian instructors. I think I was, I might have been the special child where they were really working on me, uh, making sure that I, I had the, the teaching and learning style that, that I needed for my thick brain for languages. But I got through it, and now I absolutely love Russian. Um, I've been training almost completely in Russia since the start of this year, and I really feel confident in my Russian language. I absolutely love speaking Russian. I seek it out um, at, at any opportunity. Yeah, I say when we were traveling through Moscow and went out to visit in, uh, in the summer, I was just blown away about how how well you were communicating with everybody, and I, I just felt totally comfortable going going into a restaurant and or just communicating with anybody. And uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing to, to see how quick you pick quickly you picked it up. I like what you said after you watched me in training where, you know, the people um, during a Soyuz sim talking, uh, you know, guiding us through the training and all the displays and everything, you know. Yeah it's, e one, yeah, it's one thing to order, you know, a dinner at a restaurant in Russian, but it's another thing to learn instruction on the Soyuz in Russian and have to not only uh, absorb the information but regurgitate it. Yeah. I remember thinking to myself uh, watching her, I was like, I will never complain about not being able to do something again. And it just it was pretty inspiring, to be honest with you. You haven't picked up Russian on tape to help her practice yet? <laughs> you got time, Bob. You got time. <laughs> All right. Well, you got a sign of the mission. The mission's coming up soon. It's coming up real soon. What's it been like? So you've been over in Russia a lot. You've been here. You've been kind of all over the world. What's it been like to kind of have – you, have you gotten to go anywhere new you haven't gone before as part of your training? 
Russia was the new spot. I hadn't been there before the training. Um, and then the other spot would be the European Space Agency. I got to go there, but I have been there before, so that was really nice to see them again. And yeah, it's been an incredibly um, humbling experience learning the Soyuz. Uh, originally, I was training before um, the flight changes after Nick and Alexi's launch. I was training as the co-pilot of the spacecraft, so that involves just really learning every system in a lot of depth and having a lot of simulation events with your Russian commander. So very intense training there that I absolutely loved. My engineering brain was just happy as a clam. Um, but also adjusting to not being home as much, really trusting in Bob. He had the whole home front um, kind of on lock and just being able to trust in that so that I could fully focus on what I had to over in Russia was awesome. So, the, I mean, the mission's coming up really soon. What are some of the kind of the final things that you guys have to do i know there's there's it's almost like going back to school you have to go through your final exams again i mean is that the first time since college you've had to <laughs> be in kind of a testing environment with instructors staring you down well, a couple things about that. One, um, the astronaut candidate process really prepared me for the idea of being evaluated. Um, I joke all the time that a typical workday for me um, could include people, you know, eight people following me around with clipboard as I, you know, perform some kind of a task. So the evaluation is nothing new at this point. Um, the different style in Russian is very interesting. All of our exams in ground school or oral exams so getting asked uh, questions in Russian by a committee of 10 people and uh, is definitely different um, but a challenge that that I got used to and, and could come to enjoy but the final preparations really for us are kind of unique because we are learning uh, to work together as a, a new crew so I joined Nick and Alexi uh, when they were put into this this flight slot and they've both been really welcoming I've had a chance to do Soyuz sims with Alexi as well as some Russian segment International Space Station sims and then of course Nick and I are, are astronaut classmates so we know each other really really well we've been training forever um, he actually was the first person I ever was in a Soyuz with when we had one of our very first familiarization trainings with the Soyuz you know five years ago it just so happened to be that I was paired with Nick so it's kind of neat to see how far we've come but really just learning that crew and kind of making sure everything's buttoned up at home working a lot with with Bob on the trip uh, the launch trip and yeah ducks in a row have you ever been to Kazakhstan Bob no, this will be my uh, first time. This will be your first time. Have you heard anything about it yet? Are you looking forward to it? Well, I, I guess uh, being that the launch is, is at the end of February and March, it's going to be pretty pretty cold out. But um, Yeah, bring your coat. Yeah, it's uh, we've just been prepping for the weather, you know, coming from uh, Texas and, and going there. It's going to be quite the, quite the contrast. But, uh, yeah, I just want to take it all in, and I'm just really excited for to watch Christina launch, and it's just uh, it's just so exciting. Have you seen a rocket launch before? No, I have not. So this will be your first one. The first time you see a rocket launch will be when Christina's on it. Yeah, and the range of emotions when you, when you see the rollout, and yeah, and I've seen some pictures. There's a great uh, Instagram follow that Christina put me on uh, that has a lot of great uh, PR over there, and. It just kind of gave me a good idea of what to expect. And so, yeah, it's super exciting, and I'm I really, I really looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely bring your coat, and there will be some astronauts along that'll, that'll help get you through it, and they all speak fantastic Russian just like Christina, so they'll help you out anytime you're in a restaurant. That's, I mean, that's exciting, though. It's, it's always, 
we get to, we get to ask you guys a bunch about how you're preparing and stuff like that but it's it can't ever be easy we always hear from the astronauts that the thing they miss most is the family and i imagine for the family the thing you miss most is obviously the person who's up in space for six months absolutely yeah i'll, I'll be just uh, i just can't wait for it to all go down i'm just so proud of christina and uh my goal has just been to support her the best I can throughout the whole process. You know, her uh, her, her flow has definitely been accelerated, and you know, like I said, my when she gets home, you know, make make sure everything's in order and make sure she's taken care of, and uh, that's the best I can do to support the mission. Make sure the house is still there. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have like a space bucket list or anything like that? I I always. I always like to imagine in my wild imagination that going to space is like talking to your buddies that have been to an amusement park and they're like, go on this roller coaster, <laughs> don't go do this. And that translates to go do a spacewalk or fixing this thing is absolutely miserable. Do you have kind <laughs> of a, a checklist that you're hoping to go through once you're up there? Well, you know, we, we do talk a lot amongst our cadre about, you know, the pluses and minuses, the good and the bad, the things that you definitely want to make sure you do in terms of what you bring up there or to make yourself comfortable and to be efficient in your work there. So a lot of um, advice I've received over the years. And I think I've always had uh, photography as a hobby of mine and time-lapse photography and movies so I'm really looking forward to the photography I like doing lifestyle photography as well so I'm hoping to do some kind of you know life on board the space station photography to really tell the story of of what it's like running these experiments and keeping the you know the orbiting laboratory running and other than that my mission you know no real bucket list for myself I just want to you know, give back. I've been in a lot of training and I'm just ready to kind of put it to use and to hopefully be really productive and uh, get a lot out of the mission for science and for keeping the station running smoothly. There's got to be a cut. Like, do you want to, you like dying to go to a spacewalk? You're a rock climber. So, spacewalk <laughs> is kind of like rock climbing in a sense. Because you have tethers. Walk, absolutely. And yeah. Spacewalk really speaks to a lot of the things that, uh, that I find that I love and I find challenging, you know, mental and physical fortitude, um, the equipment, the technical aspects of it. And, you know, if I were fortunate enough to be able to do a spacewalk and there are some planned for my mission, I mean, that would just be the real cum culmination of just everything I've worked on both um, in my life before arriving here and and all the training that I've received since I got here the great training teams that have prepared me so that would definitely be a highlight so at the time of this recording we're about two months away from your launch is there any kind of last minute stuff you're having to check off anything you're having to do before you go any last training because again yeah you said you go to Russia real soon so it, it's got to all kind of feel like the, the freight trains running now it sure is. Um, from my aspect, training-wise, kind of buttoning up all my final emer emergency um, qualification simulation events and just making sure I'm ready to support Nick and Alexi when we do our qualification exams in Russia and making sure that, you know, the ducks are in line um, for the accelerated launch date. The launch date had been April 6th, and right now it's scheduled for February 28th, so a little bit sooner than what we had prepped for, but my family's ready and I'm ready, so just, you know, making sure that things are buttoned up. You ready, Bob? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> you ready? All right, well, Christina Cook, NASA astronaut, Bob Cook, Army Corps of Engineers, and Christina's husband. Thank you guys for joining me. Christina, we're super excited to see you guys fly, to see you fly, along with Nick and Alexi, and we'll be following along. And yeah, take a million pictures, because we never say no to more pictures. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my Thanks pleasure. Thanks for having us. 
definitely going to want to watch Christina launch into outer space and you can see that live on NASA TV so be sure to head over to nasa.gov NTV to watch her launch along with NASA's Nick Haig and Roscosmos cosmonaut Alexei Ovchinin. Check out episode 65 to listen to Nick Haig's story that he gave us right before his first launch in October which was aborted during ascent. Now he and Ovchinin are getting a second shot this time along with Christina Cook. And as always, you can find all of the latest updates on the International Space Station online at nasa.gov ISS or on all of our different social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This episode was recorded on December 20th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, John Stoll, Pat Ryan, Nora Moran, John Streeter, Brandy Dean, and Gary Jordan. And thanks again to Christina Cook for coming on the show. Godspeed and good luck on the launch. And we'll be back next week.